is an interesting book. The book of Esther is a relatively popular story. Even in our mainstream world, the book of Esther is a really popular story. There are movies about it, Branson and plays. There's plays about Esther. You can go. Esther is a pretty big story. It's a story of romance, a story of suspense, a story of battles and fighting. A story of trickery and deceit. There's a lot in Esther. But this afternoon, I just want to speak on this topic. The battle after deliverance. See, usually we, we love the deliverance message. But there's a battle after deliverance. And so we're going to look at that today. For those of you that have never heard of Esther, maybe do not know the story, let me kind of just bring you up to speed in case you are here going, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure about this story. The story picks up with a king named Ahasuerus, and he was a very rich and powerful leader that reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. During a grand feast, and festival with many in attendance, Ahasuerus sent for his wife Vashti to come before him so that he and others could gaze on her beauty. Different time, y'all, okay? It's weird stuff, all right? But that's, he's going to call in his wife. I mean, I want to gaze on my wife's beauty too, but I wouldn't like call her in the room and be like, all right, everybody, let's gaze at my wife's beauty. It's a little strange. So she didn't come. Imagine that. She'd be uncomfortable with that. Or maybe they had a fight the night. I don't know. But she didn't come. And so Hoseris made a decree that she was forever removed from his presence. And he would now choose a new queen that would supposedly be more worthy than she was. In other words, will come when he calls. Different Again, don't get mad at me. If you're like women's lib movement here today, I didn't didn't write the story. I'm just telling you what happened here. He began to miss his wife, though. Imagine that. Sometimes makes you wonder, did he really make the decree because he just was mad that she didn't do what he wanted? Or did he really make the decree because he was standing in front of a room full of people and his ego was bruised? Probably a little, little bit of both, but maybe more the latter. And so he said, I miss my wife. And so his personal attendant suggested, hey, why don't you just, start, you just start searching the entire land for beautiful virgins? And uh, let's see where we go from there. So they searched the land, started giving them beauty treatments, and then they can come before the king. You can just choose which one pleases you most. Man, I know, I know some of you are getting irritated at this story. But this is where a girl we know as Esther steps onto the scene. And Mary, um, many Jews had been dispersed to Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar had taken their city. But years later, uh, many had returned to their homeland, but not everyone. And so Esther's real name was Hadassah. And when her mother and father had died, she had a cousin named Mordecai. He adopted her. And he raised Esther as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, a beautiful virgin, she was one of these ladies who was called to appear in a Ahasuerus' presence. Many different women would appear in the king's presence, but the king grew to love Esther so much. Because it's not just beauty, but it's her spirit. Esther had the spirit. And he put a crown on her head and declared, you know what? You're, gonna, you're, you're the one that wins, whatever you win, I guess. But you're the one that, that wins over all the other ladies. And I'm going to put a crown on your head so that you can be the one that uh, comes to me when I call for you from now on. Again, what'd you win there? But the Lord knew he had to strategically place her in this position to make a difference. And she would now be the queen. But up to this point, nobody in the palace including the king, knew that Esther was actually a Jew. And so, she was not a native of his land. 
A bit of time had gone by, and King Ahasuerus promoted a man named Haman to be the most powerful official in the kingdom other than himself. People would bow before Haman everywhere he went, and he loved it. He absolutely adored the attention. You don't want to put anybody in leadership that needs the attention. Okay? So he needed the attention. He longed for it. And so, uh, but when Haman, he, he, got, he, got this, he got this kind of degree. He got this through the land. Everywhere he goes, people bow down. But he always came to one guy who would never bow down. Guess who that was? Mordecai. Esther's cousin would never bow down. He's like, I only bow to God. I ain't bowing to you. You ain't my God. I'm not bowing down. And Haman said, you know, that's cool. I respect that. No, he didn't. He said, I'm going I'm I'm to make it my mission to find out everything about you. And I'm going to kill you. And I found out you were a Jew. And guess what? Just to prove a point, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill your entire race. Just so you know, the Jews are God's chosen people from the beginning of time, really, since Abraham. And people have been trying to destroy the Jews for thousands and thousands of years. And you look on a map, and Israel is like this tiny little speck. Okay, and I, Chad and I have been there, and just if you didn't know, but it's this tiny. Chad, you and I have bulked up since then. You can take that down now. Usually, I'm able to flow with it. I lost my train of thought right there. <laughs> so Esther, what'd you say? Israel, thank you. Israel's a tiny little country. It's tiny. Anybody should be able to walk in there and take them out. But they can't because God is on their side. And you look at the countries that surround them that don't really like them. But yet God is on their side. And when they became a nation, May 15th, 1948, only nation in history to be born again. When they became a nation, God had promised you will never be dispersed, never be destroyed again. And so Israel will always be a nation. Based on scripture, based on what we know. And so he's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill the whole Jewish race. He's, he, he's, he's, he's wanting to destroy all of them. Haman was furious that he had this one man that would not bow. And so this is what Haman came and told the king in Esther 3.8. He says, there is a certain race of people who scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. I pray. That people will always look at Refuge Church and say, hey, they are scattered everywhere, but they are separated from the rest of the world. Doesn't mean, oh, he didn't say they think they're better than everyone, they're very judgmental, they're unkind. He just says they're separated. There's something different about them. And he says... You know, their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. Not That was a bit, a bit of a fabrication there. They weren't disobeying all the laws, but he wasn't going to bow to Haman. And so it's not in the king's best interest to let them live. What a stinking deceiver. If it pleases the king, issue a decree... Didn't this just happen with Daniel, too, a couple weeks ago when we talked about it? Just tricking the kings to try to kill the holy people. But if it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I'll give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. I mean, wow. 
hey, let me take care of this. I'm even going to give money to the royal treasury. And so the king's like, yeah, no brainer, I guess. Yeah, you're giving money. We're taking care of people who aren't listening, who don't follow my laws. You're going to take care of it. I can just stay out of it. This works. So the king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, the son of that guy, the enemy of the Jews. Hamadatha. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do as you see fit. Wow. You got money to use. You got people to kill and a ring to go carry it out. 13 says, dispatches were sent by the swift messengers in all the provinces of the empire, giving the order of that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen in less than one year. Makes you kind of wonder, like, what kind of planning goes into that, that they didn't just go take care of it that weekend? That's a lot of people, I guess. You have to come up with a plan, an extensive plan. They were going to build gallows to hang them on. And so there was a lot. It was not just about killing them. It was about a public display, kind of like the cross. It was about a public display to strike fear into anyone who would think about not following rules. So they couldn't just kill them that weekend. Because they needed to prepare, build gallows, do all this stuff. They wanted on social media. They wanted the news networks to cover it, okay? That's what they wanted. And so Mordecai sent word to Esther, begging her to go join and to just go in and plead with the king for mercy. But here's the problem. There's a law in that land that you could not come before the king without an invitation. You can't just show up and be like, hey! Want to come shoot some hoops? You'd be killed. There was laws in the land. Your own wife could not come. Like, Jackie could not come and see me unless I sent her an invitation. She probably wishes that in the morning sometimes. that I wouldn't come see her in the morning. She's like, could we institute that for the wife, maybe? But, so... You couldn't come without an invitation. And so this is what Esther told Mordecai in verse 11, 411. She says, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know. Mordecai, you know better. Everyone knows this. What are you telling me to do? Anybody that comes to the king and is in her court without being invited is doomed to die unless he extends that golden scepter. And the king hasn't called for me in 30 days. So you're asking me to go... She probably was feeling some of that insecurity, like, I don't even know if he's still interested in me. It's been 30 days. It's not just about me taking a chance. Oh, yeah, no, we had dinner last night. I'll try and tag in with him again today. No, Mordecai, you don't understand. Everybody goes to their court without an invitation. They die. It's a done deal. You're a dead person. And to, to add on to that, it's been 30 days since I've even seen the man. And you're asking me to go in there and do this. I can't do this. Verse 13, Mordecai looks at Esther and he sends this reply to her. He says, don't think for a moment because you're in a palace. You're going to escape when all the other Jews are killed. You're a Jew. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. What, what an unbelievable amount of faith that he looks at this young lady that he raised and says, you're our best chance. But if you decide not to do this, kind of like what I said last night of prayer, if something happened, like the land that we're looking at, God is just too big, he's too strong, that you... God is never limited to one person, one pulpit, one pastor, one leader, one location, one piece of land. God's not limited to that. So he said, hey, yeah, I'm coming to you, but if you don't, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna figure something else out. He says, it'll come from some other place. But you and your relatives are going to die. Not to put pressure on you. He says, 
Who knows? Kind of just plant that in her mind, in her spirit. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. If you're here at prayer, I told you, junior camp, there's two junior camps that I remember. One was Daniel, one was Esther. And our t-shirt said, for such a time as this. Who knows? I mean, you might be right where you are. Is it possible that someone in this room or watching online could be going through something that seems despicable, horrible, challenging, a struggle, and you might be there for such a time as this? Yeah, but the challenge is great. Yeah, but it's such a, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Could you imagine right now the burden that was on Esther? Mordecai says, Esther, we need you. And you go, yeah, but I don't, I'm going to die. This is what happens. I ain't seen him in 30 days. Oh, that's fine. Well, God will do something else, but you're going to die then, just so you know. Perhaps you might be the queen just for this very moment. And then his, that's his message. That, that message. It's not like even they were just chatting. This message was sent to her. So imagine this. Imagine being a young lady. And the weight of the world on your shoulders right there as you walk away and begin to pace back and forth in your bedroom with this message. What do I do now? Where do I go from here? And so, the moment of truth had arrived. So what she says, Esther tells Mordecai, sends a message back and says, you and the entire nation need to begin to go on a three-day time of prayer and fasting. And then the moment of truth is here in verse 16 says, she says, I will go in to see the king, and if I must die, I must die. Willing to risk it all, willing to lose it all, she says, my people need deliverance. I need deliverance. I am going to do everything I can, and if I die, I die, because either way, I'm going to die. And so I'm at least going to see if maybe, maybe I am here for this moment. In Esther 5, verse 1, on the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace, most likely with a knotted up stomach and very sweaty palms. And just across from the king's hall, the king was sitting on the royal throne facing the entrance. She walks in. And when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the golden scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. And the king said, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. So Esther, you know, she, whether it's nerves or games, yeah, I want you to come to dinner. Yeah, bring, bring Haman. Haman's like, oh. Not many people get to eat in an intimate setting with the king and his wife. He's probably, t he probably posted it on social media. <laughs> he was like, not trying to brag, but I'm going to dinner tonight with the king and his wife. So he's pretty proud of himself. They get to dinner. He, King's probably like, what's it? She's like, you know what? Come back to another dinner. So what was the purpose of that? Is she just nervous or is she just like, I'm going to have some fun with this? I don't know. Joseph did the same thing kind of to his brothers, right? And so they come back and, and uh, she lays it all out, tells the king, yeah, you know, uh, Haman's actually been tricking you. And so Esther tell, tells the king all about it, and the king looks at Haman, and he's like, you know what? We're going to kill him and hang him on the gallows that were meant for the Jews, and, and all the truth is exposed. It all comes to light. Esther saves her people from wicked Haman because she did that. She stepped out. They prayed and fasted. She walked in there, called the dinner. Laid it all clean, and, and Haman dies. 
The Jews are delivered. Esther is delivered. And that is, what a change of events. What an act of salvation that God used Esther to save his people. And that today, as you know, I'm not going to end there because you're like, he normally is, he's not normally this short is probably what you're thinking. And you're right. But isn't that where a lot of people end? We could have preached that a little longer. We could have developed that thought a little better. And we could have ended how God delivered his people. And if we have boldness, if we go before the king, we could tie it into Jesus. And we could have a great altar call. And most people will stop the story with deliverance and Haman being hung on gallows and God's people being delivered. But the story doesn't end with deliverance. When you read on, there's actually a battle after deliverance. Because you got to understand, they were condemned to die. Gallows were built for several people already. Like, it was already in the works. They were going to die. The decree was already made. The signet ring was already given to Haman. It's already in the process of being carried out. Esther's act created deliverance, salvation for the people. But then there's a battle after the deliverance. You see, just like Haman wanted to kill Esther and God's people, the devil wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage, your children, your hope. He wants to destroy everything that makes you want to come and worship God. And there's a battle going on right now. As we speak, as we, as we raise our hands and say, I'm, I'm fatigued spiritually and I need you, that is because there is an absolute battle. There is in the spiritual realm, demonic forces are fighting angelic forces. I mean, there is an absolute battle in the spiritual world. Haman was strategically planning the demise of God's people, and the devil's trying to do the same. He's not only as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 10, finally, my brother, and he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That sounds like quite the battle. And so Paul is writing to this Ephesian church saying, just so you know, whether you realize it or not, you, there's preparation on your part, but there is an intense battle that you're facing. But not what you're used to or accustomed to with hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is in the spiritual concept, in the spiritual realm. And what I've seen so many times as a youth leader and a lead pastor now is this. God's people will pray and fast like Esther and God's people did in the Old Testament. When things get tough and the outcome looks bleak, that's when the praying and fasting takes place. So-and-so hasn't helped. He lets you begin to pray and fast. Uh, you know, we got an issue at hand. We got to begin to pray and fast. We have some people struggling. Let's begin to pray and fast. And we will pray and fast when there's a problem, when there's an issue, when the battle is easy to measure and the intensity is high. And there's keen awareness of the potential outcome. And, and that's when we will join together and we will pray and look out for one another and seek God for deliverance and salvation. But once the deliverance happens, once the good report happens, once the doctor says things are looking good, once that everything passes, everything happens that's supposed to, you get the, the aid that you wanted, the job, the promotion, the transfer, whatever it is, you got the house you were looking to buy, whatever it is that we were struggling with, the, the, the addiction we were struggling with, we've been doing well now, and so we go, wow, a deliverance, provision, God's done it, and we celebrate. And we think sometimes that the battle has subsided. The devil couldn't defeat me. I stood tall. I stood strong. We prayed and fasted. Let's have a testimony and talk about how great God is. And we should do all these things. Don't get me wrong. We should pray and fast. We should celebrate. We should testify. All these things are absolutely godly, biblical, the will of God. Okay? And so I saw something the other day. We just read in Ephesians about the spiritual battle that we are all in. 
whether we acknowledge it or not. And Paul tells the New Testament church in Ephesians to stand tall, to put on the armor of God. But when you go back to Ephesians 6.13, look what it says. It says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you're able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Now, we often read that passage as, that's the battle cry. That's the put on the armor. That's swing the sword. That's go to, go to battle, fight. But Paul is talking about preparing for the battle, doing battle, but then the focus is on what do you look like after the battle? Because the goal of what he's talking about is, we're not just trying to make it through the battle and then die of exhaustion and go, we survived. The enemy's defeated. <laughs> but the goal is when the battle ends, you're still standing. And so there's a battle for your soul, but your goal is to be standing after the battle. So the story of Esther continues in 811. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. Well, no, deliverance already took place. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives because the enemy is not just interested in you. It's interested in your spouse and your children and to take their property of their enemies. So the king issues this decree and, oh, we're delivered. Wow, Haman's dead. We're not going to be hung on the gallows. What a great day. Pray and fast. We prayed and fasted for three days in God, in God, and they had church. But the king says, I'm going to decree something else. I'm going to give you the authority that when people try to destroy you, your spouse, and your kids, you can go ahead and fight back. So the king delivered them from certain death. But then the king empowered them to continue to fight for themselves. That is a crucial part of this message. I, I'm going to repeat because you need to get it. You brought, at some point, you came to an altar. You repented of sins. You talked to God about things that maybe no one else knows about. It might have just been today. You might have some stuff in your life right now that you don't want nobody to know. And you're going, God, forgive me. God, help me. Jesus, oh, Lord, I need you, I need you to just empower. Just set me free, God. And he did that. He died on the cross. He shed blood. He has given, he has made it, made a way for us to live in freedom and not in bondage. But then he says, I have delivered you, but there's going to be future battles. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you so that now by king's decree, you are empowered to fight your own battles for yourself, for your spouse, for your children. Moving forward, it's not just about deliverance. It's about the fact that the king has empowered me to fight for myself. This was not the last battle that they were going to face. Esther 9, verse 1. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put in effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. Wow, did I understand that? So the king's decrees were put on the day that their enemies were hoping to overpower them. But quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. I love this because scripture, is God condoning violence? Is God telling us to kill people who are... No, no, no. What he's saying is, it made it very clear in scripture, they did not go on a death hunt and they just were going to try and take things from people and murder anybody that got in their way. 
they were empowered and they went into the provinces and they were going to attack anyone who tried to harm them. I do believe self-defense is biblical, by the way. And so, but no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai because he had been elevated. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. Just FYI, I'll pause right now and say that some of you that are paying money and investing these kids and you're taking them to quiz meets and you're bringing them to church and dropping them off at youth services and bringing them to Ignite and praise team practices and camps and you're like, does it ever stop? It's a full-time job just parenting these children and paying for all the things that they're doing. Those kids are the ones that are going to be sitting on the thrones and making a difference in the public settings. And, and those are the ones that are going to be stepping into the roles of Esther who are going to make a difference in our cities and our communities. But God, hear me, I'm not done. God is not going to forget you. Mordecai was the one that was just wearing the sackcloth and ashes. She's up in the palace. She's up in the, in the throne room. She's the one that he raised, that he taught life lessons to. She's the one, the beautiful queen that's up there getting, oh, she, everybody knows Esther. She, Esther's up there. But Mordecai was the one that was down on the ground communicating with the people, trying to talk. But when God was ready, he said, you know, I use Esther to do this, but I have not forgotten you, Mordecai. Mordecai was elevated to a place, and it wasn't about the elevation. It was just about the fact that God says, I have not forgot you as an elder who has made a difference in the lives of others. And so the Jews, he, his, his fame spread, and the Jews, verse 5, went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. Verse 16, meanwhile, the other Jews through the king's provinces had gathered together to defend their lives. They gained, notice, why they gathered together? To defend their lives. Not just because they wanted their car, their chariot, or their house, or their money. No, no. To, to defend their lives. They gained relief from all of their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not take any plunder because it was not about that. The scripture makes it clear. It was not about that. And some read this story of Esther, and they never realized that thousands of people hated God's people. Thousands of people wanted to kill and destroy the families of God. Thousands wanted to war against them. The story did not end with Haman. This was the first story of deliverance in Esther. But there were more battles after deliverance. God has done some incredible things. If I started to pass the mic around, we'd pass our time before we'd have to be out of here. And we could hear, I mean, stories that some of you maybe know about each other. You would hear stories that you've never heard before. Some of the things that God's done in the way of provision, physical healing, deliverance, and what he's used you to pray with people and teach Bible studies, teach kids, preach. I mean, God has done incredible things just in this room. Just here. You would hear amazing testimony, an amazing testimony. God made a way when there was no way. He brought hope to a hopeless situation. But please hear me. If you kick back now and say, man, I've served God a long time. I'll tell you about 1974. I'll tell you about 1986. I'll tell you about 1993. I'll, I'll never forget that day in 2002. And those things should stand because the Bible even said that they would set up stones as a memorial so that when the kids would come by and say, why are those stand? Oh, let me tell you a story about the Jordan River. Let me tell you a story about the Red Sea. There should be things that stand the test of time that we can point back to and build faith in the next generation. But if all we do is build faith and we aren't building any new stones, if 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years down the road, the only stones that we have to point to are from the 1970s or 60s or 80s or 90s. At some point, it's like the, it's like the guy that just all he does is keep talking about how strong he used to be in high school and how good oh, I could have went pro. I'm looking like, dude, go pro in what? 
Oh, I remember all the ladies were after me. You just hear these stories. You're like, man, I don't know who this guy thinks he is, but I don't see it. If all we ever do, though, is we point back to the things that God did one day long ago, and there's no new stones to point to, the next generation says, yeah, Mom and Dad, you told me that story about the stones of the 70s. You told me that story about the stones of the 80s. But, 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 but what, where's the new stones? Where's the new testimonies? Where's the new miracle signs and wonders? And if all we do is just kick back and celebrate our deliverance and forget that there are still thousands, I'm telling you, thousands. The Bible talks about in Revelation that when there's a thousand-year millennium, that the devil and the demons are released, and there are people as the sands of the seashore waiting, ready to fight against God and his people. Listen, we're not serving a devil who has like a, 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 a devil board of five people. Like there are thousands of fallen angels. Demons that would love to still destroy you, your spouse, your children, there's nothing that the enemy wants more is for you to get discouraged to like, the, like, like when Israel got called of Egypt, go back to the lifestyle that you once lived. You know, some of you, he wants to take you back. You, you used to struggle with alcohol. You used to hit the bars every weekend. He wants to take you back into that. And you say, well, no, no, I've come a long way. No, no. He wants to take you back. He wants to bring you back into the drug and, 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 and drug alcohol lifestyle. He wants you selling drugs. He wants you taking drugs. He wants you going back to pornography. He wants you to where your marriage is on the rocks. You guys are starting to sleep apart, stay in different rooms, stay in different houses. He wants you raising your voice, throwing things in your house. The kids seeing it, getting scared. He wants the kids to be in an unsettled atmosphere where they don't even know if mom and dad still love each other and they're questioning whether it's really their fault or not. And, and, then, and then we're bringing them to church and we're handing them to Sunday school teachers to say, please, can you fix them? Can you help them? But what's going on at home is not congruent. It's not lining up with the principles of Scripture. And what God's trying to do is he's trying to speak to us. He's trying to say, hey, listen, it's not, don't just kick back and say, oh, I got that one deliverance. I won that one battle years ago. There's nothing the devil wants more is for you to go back into all of the things that you used to be a part of. He wants you to go back into violence and to drugs and alcohol and the swearing. He wants you to let the entertainment back into your house that you used to watch you you stopped watching and it's starting to make its way back in he wants you to go back to the music you listened to back in the day and oh you know it just started because i was scanning the channels and he wants to start to bring these things back because he's speaking to people who've experienced deliverance and so you're walking going yeah i've been delivered i've been set free i'm filled with the spirit and all of a sudden there's a little bit of a false hope because remember Paul says the goal is not just to fight the battle, but to be standing after the battle's done. And that's why he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. That's not to scare us, like, oh, man, what if I fall again? I'm so scared. Paul was not saying we have to live in fear of the enemy. He says, you better just be aware of the enemy. You just better be aware, because otherwise, you're just like, I'm standing tall. This is who I am. And before you know it, whoop. And so we have to be aware. He's not saying be afraid, but he's saying be ready. Stay in the battle. Daily put on the armor of God. And for us as believers, people are being called to go back, to return, to walk away. Feel discouraged. You can't do it. It's not worth it. Nobody would notice anyway. It's not really that big of a deal. And these are the things that the enemy is playing, trying to plant in our spirit. Why? Because the battle's intensifying because the time is getting shorter. The time is getting shorter. And right now, the, the, you can almost, if you listen hard enough to Trumpy, you can almost start to hear it in the distance because it's getting, time's getting shorter. As time gets shorter, the battle intensifies. Time gets shorter, the battle intensifies. And so right now, the battle is as intense as it has ever been because the enemy wants to destroy your family. And if he can get you out of church now, our kids and our grandkids 
will not tell stories about what this stone means and the miracles that pointed to God. Our kids will tell stories about, you know what, I used to, my parents, my grandparents used to go to a Pentecostal church. What stories is our legacy going to leave? What stories are our children going to tell? Are they going to talk about the stones that stand as a memorial to God? Or are they going to talk about how my parents or grandparents used to go to a Pentecostal church? But you see how you'd stand still? It's not just the armor of God. But notice there's a little hint in Esther 9.16 when it says the Jews throughout the king's provinces. It does not say they just went out and started to fight. It does not say that they just went out and fought for their spouse and fought for their kids. And, and that, would have been, that would have been noble. That would have been something that, wow, that, that's amazing. Look at them fighting for their families. But notice it says that the king's provinces, they had gathered together. If you are going to stand in these last days, do not believe the lie that you can do it by yourself. Because if you think you can isolate and exist on an island, I don't need a church. God hears me in my bed. God hears me when I drive my car. Being in church ain't that important. Man, I've heard this from so many people so many times. It's foolish. Okay, God designed a church that is what he designed, that is his design, that is not mine, that's his. And if you think that I can just exist and keep going, and I don't need to be in church, I don't need to be at youth service, I don't need to go to prayer meetings, I, I don't need small groups. All these other people, they, small groups are for people that just want to talk and throughout the week. I don't need that stuff. Yes, you do. And you know why you need it? Because it's not just for you, but you need to be there for someone else. If all we're ever thinking about is what fills me and what gives me, yeah, but it's a sacrifice. God forbid he calls us to sacrifice, right? If, if a small group is where not only am I going to get some, I'm going to give something to somebody else. I might be the one that's sitting there and say, somebody starts to weep, and I say, you know what? I went through exactly what you went through just a few years ago. Let's get together for some coffee and let's chat about it because I think I could share with you a few of the things I learned on my journey. And so... But that's the thing, if we're gonna stand, if we're gonna if we're gonna win the victory and win the long-term battle and still be standing, 75,000 people, some of you are really strong, some of you are trained in combat. I still ain't putting my money on you against 75,000 people. But when all the people of God gather together, there ain't no enemy in any spiritual realm that can take on an entire church. <laughs> because when the church binds together, that makes, the, that makes the demonic realm begin to shake. They say, oh man, something's going on. Those people are unifying. They're loving one another. But so the, the church can't, they will never be defeated. That's why Mordecai says, hey, Esther, you're a shot. But if you don't do this, God's choosing something else. Why? Because his church will stand for, we don't believe in predestination. God did not go, uh, you're in, you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out, you're out, you're out, you're in, you're in. He did not do that. And no matter what you do, he predestined you to go one way or another. But one thing was predestined, and that is, I am going to have a church, and the church will prevail. That is one thing he predestined. What he did not predestine is, are you going to be a part of that church or not? That is your choice. So if you say, I'm going I'm to stay connected to the church, which means connected does not mean I occasionally drop in for a service. Stay connected means I'm bought in. I live this way. I, 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 am in, I am involved in everything. I'm plugged in. I'm serving. I'm doing these things. I'm going to the small groups. I'm getting involved. Why? Because I know that in this army, I'm an integral part of it. So gathering together, there are more battles to be fought. There are more battles to be won. And the way you win those battles is to keep gathering together. Don't isolate yourself and quit coming to church. Don't believe a lie that you don't need these small groups. Don't let the flesh win out and skip the prayer meetings. Stay in the fight. 
And I'm just about done today. But you see, I'm, I'm trying to make the church aware because we are so good at celebrating deliverance. We serve a God who can, if you are here today and you need deliverance, I'm telling you, you can, this is not like, oh yeah, just, just randomly trying to, trying to be a motivational speaker. Like, you can literally come to this place and we will pray over you and the power, the presence of God, the spirit of God will fill your life and can actually break addictions like that. It can happen. Instantaneously, supernaturally, it can happen. But if the addiction breaks, or when the addiction breaks, we walk away and just celebrate the addiction being broken. Celebrate the deliverance. The enemy's like, all right, you won round one. Round two, we're coming at you a little different. And that's why your spirit is sometimes fatigued. It's not because you are a not a good Christian. It's not because you're unholy. It's not because you just aren't a good person. You haven't done doing enough. I got to do more. I got to give more, serve more. It's not even any of that. But what happens is our spirit gets fatigued because we get battle weary. Especially those of you with young kids at home. Every day. The enemy's knocking on the door. The enemy's knocking on the door. Why? The enemy says, I want the grandkids. The enemy's knocking on the door because they said, man, I don't want Jonathan Patrick to be raised in a Christian home. I want his the parents to go back to some of the things that I called them out of. Because then Jonathan Patrick might follow in those footsteps. The enemy's there saying, you know what? I don't want Maddie to go to school and be a shining light. If I can get Chad and Shannon yelling at each other and getting frustrated with each other and arguing about things, Maddie can be raised in a home where she comes to Sunday school and says, I don't hear, I don't see that at home. And she counts down the days to when she can be 18 and not have to go to church. That's what the enemy wants. The enemy doesn't, the enemy doesn't want Audrey and Alex and quizzing. Serving God, singing on praise teams, coming to altars and jumping up and down and crying and praying with people and touching young children, praying with them. The enemy wants to knock on the door and get Amy to go, why am I even living this way? I, I, I'm, I'm sick of this. It's, I'm done. I'm, I'm going back to things I used to do. That's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants to seek, to kill, to destroy and as parents, we're paying for things and investing in things and driving our kids and bringing them to the altars. And we're doing this. And we're through the week, they're bringing us things. And they're telling you stuff about school. And you're, you feel this burden. And you feel this intense weight on your shoulders as you hear the stories about the things they deal with. And you go, my God, I never dealt with that. Lord, I never dealt with any of these things. How do I parent these kids? And you begin to pray, Lord, I pray a covering over them. I just, God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you just gather them. I pray. And there's times that you leave your prayer time and you just, you're so worn out. You're so worried and you're so fatigued. And you're just like, I'm, I'm just praying over them constantly. And, and then you're going, God, help the help our kids help them. Some of you are Sunday school teachers. You work in rock church, and you're doing the same thing even though they're not your kids, and, and you're covering people in prayer. And now you're going, but I feel tired at times. Man, it's being intense at times. I don't know what's going to go on. Here's what's going to go on. The church is going to prevail. The church is going to win. Those battles of, of 
of coming early and driving long and dropping kids off and paying for them to go places and bringing them over here and praying with them and praying through the week. And it's not just them. It's making sure you're prayed up and you're doing the things you need to be doing. Listen, God is faithful. God hears your prayers. Every prayer is stored up in a bottle. And as you just keep pursuing God and you're faithful to God and you're coming to the altar and you're giving and you're serving and you're seeking God and you're bringing the kids up with you and you're bringing them to prayer meetings going, why did I just bring them to a prayer meeting? All I did was try to pray and they ran around and, and I just feel like I'm more irritated than anything when I get in the car. But you did something at a prayer meeting. You got them into the presence and the power of God with the people of God as you began to pray and you began to seek God's face. And little by little, all of a sudden, you watch the little child, like Payson did to Chad, walk up and wrap her arm in her daddy's arm and kneel with him at an altar. And I don't know how much she prayed. I don't think she walked up and said, Dear Dad, I give you a word from God. No, but something happened when she says, I see my daddy at the altar. I'm going to wrap my arm in his. And we'll get at the altar with him. Why? Because as I grow up, there's going to be some altars in our lives. Lives. And that's what we need today. We need a church that says, yeah, I might be fatigued at times. I might be a little worn out at times, but, but I'm battle tested. I'm going to put on the armor again today. And I'm going to fight again today when I don't feel like fighting. I'm going to swing a sword again when I don't feel like swinging a sword. Why? Because God's delivered me once. God's delivered me twice and three times and four times. But I know there's more battles after deliverance. I know the enemy wants nothing more than to ruin me, ruin my family, ruin my children. And so you know what? Today I stand up and I go to battle again. I go to battle again because I'm, I'm tired, but I, I know if I, if I get with the people of God, if I get with the church of God, that together, together we will always stand. And so I invite you today that if you're here and you're saying, I don't care if I'm tired or not, I'm going to get to an altar. I'm going to put on the armor again. I'm going to swing the sword again. Certainly I've been delivered. And I can tell you stories. I can share my testimony with you. I can tell you great things about what God has done. But today I'm coming to an altar, getting ready for the next round of battles. I'm getting ready for the next round of altars that are going to be built. I'm getting ready for the next tones that are going to be put on top of each other that my kids are going to say, oh, in 2022, I remember when God did that. In 2022, I remember when God delivered us in that. Oh, there's more. There's more battles after deliverance. And we need a church that's willing to fight them just like the church did before us.